Well, good morning. Daniel is one of those books that um, is maybe less familiar, and so it feels important that we have a chance to hear it. Kind of, that wasn't all of chapter two, but that was a good chunk of it. Well, I'm sure that all of us have had dreams at one point or another. Um, the one that came to my mind from my life as I was sitting with this passage this week, um, we lived in Germany when I was in sixth grade, and we were getting ready to move back to the States, and that was an unsettling time for me. Um, and I had a dream one night that I was being chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And um, I jumped into this red like Mustang convertible that just happened to be sitting there. And magically, I knew how to drive it. And so the dream was me like racing through town trying to get away from this dinosaur that was chasing after me. And the amazing thing was when I woke up and asked my dad about it, like, which foot is the brake and which is the gas? Like, I actually had it right in my dream. <laughs> So this is a story of the king of Babylon having a dream. And the spirit is troubled, it says, and, he, and the sleep has left him. And so the question I want to start with is, why did Nebuchadnezzar have this dream? Because Nebuchadnezzar was, he had everything going for him, it appears. He was an absolute ruler in his day. He was the longest ruling king in the empire of Babylon from start to finish. He was the most powerful figure in the known world at that point. So why was he having dreams like this one? Well, as my dream reflected in my life, there was a certain amount of anxiety that was present in my life, a certain amount of insecurity. And Nebuchadnezzar, it does not look like he has any reason to be anxious, any reason to be insecure. And yet, that is the origin of this dream. The statue symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar's inadequacy in the face of threats that are pressing in on him and his empire. Oftentimes, um, whether we acknowledge it or not, we live with insecurities in our life, feelings of inadequacy that we try and suppress, um, but they pop out in different places, in our dreams, in our, in our health. Um, even as we try to kind of pile around ourselves um, Things that allow us to believe that we are that illusion, that we are um, uh, secure. So for Nebuchadnezzar, he had, he had brought around himself position, fame, wealth, power. Um, and the higher and higher he climbed in his position, in his um, authority over this dominion, the more insecure he actually becomes. Because the more terrible the fall may be, if it is discovered how incapable he truly is. So Nebuchadnezzar has climbed high, but he realizes that 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 giant persona is like a big balloon that at any moment could be popped. He could be revealed for the fraud that he feels himself in the inward being to be. And so he has this terrible dream. Nebuchadnezzar's vision is a jarring reminder to him, to us, that the great powers of this world um, and his age and ours are truly fragile. They're one pinprick away from being deflated, from being toppled. What seems so permanent to us can fall apart so easily. But if we stop in our analysis of this passage at that national, global, um, you know, tyrant level, then we miss um, much of what this passage has to say to us. We get off too easy if we stop there. 
This example of Nebuchadnezzar, his dream, his insecurity, also helps to explain what each one of us experiences in our inmost being, the insecurity that each one of us live with. We walk around with these personas, this, this, this vision of ourselves that we want to project, that we want people to believe. But the reality is that there's a lot inside that we don't want people to see. And this insecurity that we live with is the root of, of many of the domestic tragedies in our world, in our homes, in the homes of our loved one. Nebuchadnezzar is an example of the, in, the hidden insecurity that can drive us to all sorts of things. Alcoholism, the accumulation of wealth or other pleasures, working obsessively, abusing a loved one, demeaning other people in order to make ourselves feel better. So this vision that's given by God to Nebuchadnezzar reveals the truth that no earthly kingdom lasts, whether it be a global national kingdom or the kingdoms that we construct within our own lives. No kingdom will last. And so if our time, if our energy is invested in building these earthly kingdoms, we will never be free of anxiety. We will never be free of insecurity, of the fear of that kingdom being toppled. Now I want to look at this rock that we see come into the picture that topples this statue. Now, we've already said that Nebuchadnezzar's dream stems from his insecurity, from his anxiety. But then Daniel begins to explain the vision, and at first, Nebuchadnezzar takes a sigh. He breathes a sigh of relief. As Daniel starts describing, you, your majesty, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and glory, all of these wonderful things. You rule over every man and beast and bird of the earth. You are that head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh, yes, I am. Puffing him up there. So what's happening here? This is the nation that has just conquered God's chosen people, has just ransacked his temple, has just carried all of the holy objects from the temple and brought them to the pagan shrines. And yet Daniel's interpretation of the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold the king of kings, and that it's God who has granted him this position and this power. So what is going on? Has God written off the kingdom of Judah here? Has he decided to abandon his covenant people in favor of the stronger national power? Well, in verse 34, we see the camera panning back from its kind of zoomed-in focus on the statue, and we are allowed to see that at the same time that this statue is existing in all of its glory, that there is another kingdom that is rising. A rock has been hewn out of a mountain, not by human hands, it says, and it's growing. Now we hear the echo of an angel's announcement to a virgin here, that she would conceive and would give birth to a son. A conception was not by human hands. A rock is cut out of this mountain, not by human hands. And Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that 
even as one earthly kingdom after another rises and falls, that the God of heaven is going about setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will crush all of these other kingdoms and bring them to an end. And then in that vision, the rock strikes the feet of that statue and it crumbles, not into you know a few pieces. It says it crumbles into pieces so fine that it's like chaff and the wind just blows it away. It's as if it was never there. And then this rock grows and grows and grows and grows until it fills the entire world. Well, what Daniel is doing here is proclaiming the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar. This rock is Jesus, the same Jesus that you and I are also called to proclaim in our world to the anxious parents and the sleepless professionals and the uneasy tyrants of our day. What Daniel is proclaiming here is very much the message that John the Baptist came proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what Nebuchadnezzar had seen and what Daniel saw in the rock was that kingdom of God breaking in to the world, into the midst of the affairs of the world, with irresistible and ever-growing power, smashing to nothingness everything that has been, everything that hinders it, everything that stands in the way of that kingdom of God, smashed to chaff and then blown away. Well, in the face of the overwhelming realities in the world today, there is a comfort for us in this vision that Daniel interprets. Comfort in remembering that even now, even in the face of situations that seem so overwhelming, situations that seem to be heading in the wrong direction, that God is sovereign, even now. That nothing that is happening in the world today is going to conquer God. God is sovereign, and even now, he is moving history in the direction that he wants it to go towards the inbreaking of his kingdom, a kingdom that even though we can't see it, is growing stronger and stronger and stronger, and that one day will grow to fill all the earth. And that kingdom that is coming is a kingdom that we can look forward to with anticipation. It's a kingdom in which there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's a kingdom where Enemies will will come together while the lion will, will lie down with the lamb. This kingdom is advancing now. I love the imagery in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia when he says that Aslan is on the move. Even though they couldn't see it yet, even though Narnia was still shrouded in snow, spring is coming. Aslan is on the move. Now, I didn't have Laurel read the entire chapter, and there's a portion that she skipped over that I actually really want us to um, recognize. And that is that when Daniel receives word that all of the wise men are going to be killed because none of them are able to tell the king his dream and interpret it, Daniel asks for permission. He says, just give me a couple of days. 
Let me go and, and let me see if I can pray to my God and uh, figure this out. And Daniel goes back. He gets permission. He goes back to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, you guys, you have to pray with me to the God of heaven for an answer to what is going on here. We're, we're going to lose our lives. So I want us to notice the part that a little praying church has here in these significant events taking place in the halls of power in the most powerful nation of the world. Four praying people get down on their knees and pray to the Lord of the universe. Daniel doesn't despair in the face of this tragic news that he's going to lose his life. Instead, he asks his friends to pray. They go to the Lord in prayer. And it is because of these prayers, it's in response to these prayers that God shows Daniel the vision and interprets it for him, which ultimately results in not only Daniel's life being spared, but all of the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had told them that if they could not tell him the dream and interpret it, he was going to chop them into little pieces. And because Daniel and his friends go to prayer, the Lord honors their prayers and gives them the interpretation, and their lives are spared. Now, Daniel is clear that no human, including himself, has the power to do what the king is asking. But his God can. And not only can his God, but his God does. He reveals the mystery of the king's vision in answer to these prayers of a little praying church. Nebuchadnezzar's gods did not live among human beings. That was the response of the wise men. What you're asking is impossible. Only the gods would know that, and the gods don't live among men. But we worship a God who does live among us who we have direct access to in Jesus through prayer. A God who, in Daniel's words, gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning, who reveals deep and hidden things, and who knows what lies in darkness. So the bold prayers of Daniel and his friends encourage us to not simply give in and give up, to not simply act or not simply accept the harsh realities of the world around us, but to be unafraid to wrestle with God, to go before the Lord and truly contend for the things that we think are right. We see this example here and elsewhere in Scripture of God rewarding persistent and faithful prayer. Many of you know that Mark's mom had a stroke recently, and she's in a rehab center now working to regain whatever functionality she'll be able to regain, but she's a long ways from where she was. And if I'm honest, um, it is hard for me to be hopeful for a full recovery at this point. But um, Mark's dad, Roger, in a conversation with Mark this week, was like, Mark, you know, the doctors are saying these things, but I don't want to take the doctor's word for it. Will you partner with me in contending with God about this and truly wrestling with God for her full recovery? And this passage here is a passage that calls us to that sort of wrestling with God. 
It is in response to Daniel's urgent prayer that God reveals to him what he needs to go before the king with confidence. And it is as representatives of a little praying church that Daniel enters the halls of power and gets to be a part of God working a series of miracles at the national level. Miraculous events occur when small churches contend with God for the things that they believe are right. My hope this morning is that we could be a praying people as Daniel and his friends, a people who pray with urgency, who pray with expectation, even in the face of what seems to be impossibilities. My hope is that God would use us, his people scattered in exile, in a world that is not our own, that he would use us in each of the places that we find ourselves when we head out the doors, when we go to work, when we interact with our neighbors, when we bring our kids to school, that he would work with us in all of those places, that our convictions would convict, that our compassion would heal, and that our prayers would bring about miracles. That's my prayer for us this morning. Well, we're going to come to the table now. So let me pray for us as we ready our hearts to receive this gift. Lord, the book of Daniel is a strange, amazing story in which we see you working in ways that many of us have not witnessed in our lives. But, oh, Lord, how we want to see you work miracles in our lives, in our world. Lord, we choose to claim as true this image of the rock coming and crushing the kingdoms of this world and growing to fill it. We we choose to believe that your kingdom is advancing, that even though we with our own eyes, cannot see often the ways that your kingdom is breaking in and and having victories. We choose to believe it, Lord, and we ask that increasingly you would give us eyes to see your kingdom coming. You would give us courage to proclaim that. You would give us courage to wrestle with you when we encounter places that so desperately need your transformation. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this table. We thank you for this tangible reminder that you are not a God who resides in the heavens far off from your people, but that you have come down, that you are with us. As we eat this bread and this juice, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us for the hard work of being your people a people living in a foreign land. Lord, thank you that we are not alone. Amen. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, This is a cup of a new covenant, 
sealed by my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death and his resurrection until he comes again. Jeremy is the elder who's going to be assisting me in communion this morning. This is gluten-free bread so all can partake of the same loaf. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come and be strengthened for the journey.